Read with me. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were also cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their prophets did to the false prophets. Their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time here together today. Yes, Lord, we thank you for moms. We thank you for the women in our lives who have been our earthly mothers, but also who are mothers to our children and mothers in this culture, in this world today. Women in general, Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for a day to celebrate that. And Lord, we thank you as well to be here today and to be able to open your word and to hear specifically the sermon, the preaching of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful to hear his words. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me, help us to hear these words. Help us to understand exactly what Jesus meant by these words a few thousand years ago. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I don't usually do this. might be a little bit odd for some of you, but I have a short video clip that I'd like you to watch as we begin this morning. TV sales are down. We're getting killed by this internet fad. How about a music club? Uh, Ten CDs for a dollar. We should invest in laser discs. What if we didn't have to sell CDs? If the market trend is to shift online, we should create an online platform and charge monthly subscription fees. How is that going to help us sell CDs? Are you on the right side of change? Ask a CPA. I, I love this commercial. Uh, as many of you know, um, I spent most of, well, 30 years in the marketplace. And um, uh, much of that time building technology companies, um, and, and I've actually been around long enough, I know it, I don't look it, but I've been around long enough to be asking the question, how do we sell more vinyl, right? Okay, so th- I love this commercial because it is about change, and what they're doing in this commercial is really interesting. I've been through in business and in life, and some of you have already seen it, many periods which we could, which we could call dinosaur periods, right? Periods where people just were not able to adapt to change. Actually, for the most part, most of us, I would suggest, are really having a hard time with that. And some of you who are young, you're going, nah, no big deal, you just wait. You just wait. As you get older, change becomes more and more difficult. The resistance to change is actually very real. 
For any people group, whether it's in business or normal day-to-day life, change is not something generally any of us are good at, even when the need to adapt or change is critical. So here's a question for you. How about you? Have you ever really, really wanted to change? (laughs) To change? And I'm not talking here about change in the sense of, well, change where I live or change my job or my career, um, buy a different house or or, or change uh, who I'm dating or anything like that. I'm not talking about changes like that. I'm talking about real significant change, whether it's physical change due to unhealthy habits that are making you physically sick and you need to change and you know it, or whether you're dealing with depression or anger or lack of purpose in life or interpersonal relationships, addictions, I could go on and on, right? There are points in all of our lives that we get to where we know, we sense, I need to change. I need to change. So my question is, how's that going for you? As you've been going through these phases of your life and you've sensed, I really need to change, how have you been doing? Have you been successful on your own and especially using the the tools that are available in our culture and our world today? I mean, there are books, right? Lots of books. There are seminars, right? There, There are lots of teachers and gurus and ideas out there. There are a myriad of diets. There are a myriad of ways psychologically to deal with you and the change that you require How's it going? How's it going? Especially at the deepest, deepest levels of our hearts. How's that going? I've been reading a book over the past six months that I, I, I have to say, you know me, I, I like to read. I read a lot of books, and, and it's about Christianity, about life, about the Bible, about culture. I just, I just love it. But this one book ha- has really transformed my thinking uh, practically speaking, about who I want to be personally as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Because I don't know about you, but that's one area where I keep feeling like the, the change is not happening in the way that I would like. Uh, this book is called You Are What You Love. It's written by a professor of philosophy whose name is James K.A. Smith. He is a Christian. And it's possibly, friends, the most profound book I have read on the subject of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how many times I've recommended to our body, to the church, buy this book and read it. And then weeks later, months later, I say, hey, did you buy the book? Uh, no, but I was thinking, buy this book, church. Buy this book. It's current, very current to our world and our culture. And it's current to you and to where you are at. It's a fantastic book. You see, much of his thesis in this book is that you and I have learned to love what we love mostly out of habit and to the point where it's become like, really, it's become like riding a bike. We don't even think about it. Once we learn how to ride a bike, we don't think about it anymore. We just jump on, pedal, and we love it, but we don't think about it anymore. We give little thought to what we love. We just know we love it. And the reality is sometimes we don't even know we're loving things. Just ask your spouse. Ask your friends, what do I love? They'll tell you. They'll tell you what you love. They really, really will. It's painful. Much of what we love, however, listen, it's not good for us. Much of what we love is not good for us. And and frankly, if we're Christians, we have to be brutally honest 
Some of the things that we're still holding on to and that we love are sinful, and they're hurting us. They're preventing us from becoming what Christ has for us in this life today. So because of our way of life, our habits are all formed out of and around the things that we love. What we need is not more books to read. Books are good. They're helpful. But we don't need more books to read, more seminars to go to, so that we can think our way to positive change. That's my advice. We don't need more of that. No, what we need is change of heart. We need a change of heart. A change of heart that leads towards the life that leads towards a change of attitudes, towards everything. But it takes a change of heart before our attitudes to the things that we love that are not good for us change. And so along comes Jesus in the days that we're reading about here. And and he starts, and we've seen this now for a few weeks, he starts turning everything upside down. Now, you know, if you've been in the church long enough, that we're beginning the Sermon on the Mount here, at least Luke's record of it, which is much shorter than Matthew's. And and you know that he's going to talk about loving your enemies. This is crazy stuff. He turns it all upside down. Every human idea, every human way to the good life, to the things that we love, Jesus turns them upside down. Why? Because he literally came to change the world, not Apple. (laughs) He came to change the world, everything in it. And he wants to do that to start with you and with me. Friends, what you and I need is a change of attitude that can only come from a changed heart. So your sermon message for today is a change of heart. I hope to show you two things from this passage, which is interesting how they're connected. The first is worldly attitudes, and then is a comparison that Luke has ordered from the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, of kingdom attitudes versus what I'm calling deadly attitudes. Number one, worldly attitudes. Look at these verses again with me, verses 16 and 17. I'll put them on screen for you. And he, Jesus, came down with them. And stood on a level plain with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. This is a good day. It's a good day. So Jesus came down with them. This lets us know the context and the the timing, right? He's coming down with them, which is the 12 apostles, but there were also the rest of his disciples were there. Remember we saw that last week? They're all there. There's like five, 600 of his disciples there, and he starts calling out his dream team. One at a time, he starts calling out the apostles from the group, and some of them are like, Peter wasn't surprised. He goes, yeah, I should have been picked. But the rest of them are kind of like, who, me? And, And they all come forward. And so they're coming down the mountain on this day, with Jesus, and that's what he means by with them. So it's, it's a real momentous, as we said last week, time in history. After praying all night, Jesus chose from hundreds of people these 12 men to be the foundation of his church at that time to this day and for eternity. Their names will be on the foundation of the new gates to the new Jerusalem one day. Amen? That's amazing, these 12 men. 
So they were just common men, though. We saw that last week. There were no superstars on Jesus' team. What qualified them for this role to be on his team is the same thing that qualifies you and I. Jesus called us, and he chose them. That's it. Jesus does the calling and the choosing. So when Jesus called Simon Peter, he said, you remember that? When he first called Simon Peter, he said, follow me and I will make you, important words, I will make you a fisher of men. Now think about that. Let's remember that as we look at the change of heart that we need here today. So last week, of course, we had some fun thinking about that selection process. Uh, But again, think about this. Think about this this morning. None of these men volunteered for this job, did they, right? None of them were going, pick me, pick me. Well, maybe Peter. But most of them were not doing that, right? There was no advertisement by Jesus, you know, posted in the local, you know, Jewish, you know, you know, posted whatever they posted that time because they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or any of those wonderful things. But there was no ad posted. I saw a commentary who, who listed it this way. This would, might have been what the ad would have looked like, though, if Jesus had posted an ad. It might have said something like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete exhaustion and total rejection. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in the event of success, not guaranteed. I'm signing up. You ready for that? But, but really, these guys did not choose this call. So now here they are walking down slightly from the mountaintop, the peak, to a level area where Jesus is now going to preach and speak to his disciples, first of all, who are closest to him, and then to the crowds that are all around. And of course, it's his most, his most famous sermon ever. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. So let's see, first of all, the three groups of people that are here. There are three groups here. There are the 12 who are front and center. They've just been picked. They're like, okay, <laughs> we're the guys that he's chosen. We need to be, maybe, should we sit beside him? Where should we be? But we're up front at least. And then there is the crowd of disciples. You see that? And so like I said last week, there weren't just a few that he picked from. There was a crowd. There was a large number. But then there was also a large, a great number of people from all over the place. And so as we've been getting to see for some time now, Jesus has become literally a megastar in these days. Thousands and thousands of people are coming from all over the world. Word has spread out about him, uh, about his amazing preaching and teaching, yes, but also that 100% of the time, if he is asked to heal somebody, touches someone, they are 100% of the time healed. That's amazing. So this word is spread about him all over Israel, and we learned from Matthew's gospel a few years ago about these events that this is the point where Jesus actually changes his approach dramatically towards the people. You see, we've seen so far where he's been kind of hostile, kind of, maybe a lot, towards the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious dudes, right? He's been very hostile, but now he changes his tactic, and it's pretty clear from this point on, that we will see that Jesus is really not into crowds. He's not into the crowd. And not because he doesn't love them, but because of their motivation. And we look at crowds today, right, in in large churches, and we're like, now, that's obviously a great church. The preacher's obviously amazing. We, We look at large numbers like that today, and we think that's a good thing. And I think probably in that day, at first, the disciples were like, 
that's, that's awesome. Jesus, look at all these people. It's amazing. And then when Jesus started talking about, you know, eat my body, drink my blood, they're going, well, stop that. Because <laughs> the crowd starts to thin because of Jesus' preaching. And so he's really not into these crowds. Jesus changes his approach. He was previously, as I said, aiming most of his criticism at the religious Pharisees and scribes. Today, as we will see, he takes on the attitudes of those just following the crowd. So look at what they've come to Jesus for, for example. First, yes, they came to hear him. Jesus had by this time developed a reputation as being an unbelievably powerful preacher with wisdom that they'd never heard before. Nothing's changed. The same thing is true today, right? There are some motivational speakers who can fill hockey rinks, right? 20,000 people will come to hear and get pumped up and jacked up to go out and hopefully change what they're doing so they'll make more money, right? There's all kinds of examples of that today in our world. So nothing's really... It's completely normal and acceptable on this level, but it would be, listen, a huge mistake to only come to hear Jesus. Just to hear him. That is what we're seeing here. Jesus didn't come to give them or us some secret to a better and healthy and more moral life. That's not why he came or why he's preaching these messages. As he said a few weeks ago in our study, he made it very clear why I have come. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. This is what he preached all the time, and eventually it starts to thin the crowd. Secondly, they came, look, they, obviously they came for their material needs. They're like, they're sick. They need healing. They need a touch. They need the power of Christ to come out and heal them. But both are clearly needed, and Jesus is willing to give them, as the next verse shows us in verse 19, it says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The word about that had even gotten out. You just, you just need to touch his cloak, man. You don't even have to listen to the whole sermon. Just touch him, and you'll be healed, and then you can go home. This was literally happening. And so those who have a worldly attitude towards God, towards Jesus, some of us have been there. Some of us might still be there. We want his touch purely for what it will do for us, purely for what it will do for us and when we need it most. And once they have what they came for, and we're going to see this dramatically as we go forward after the feeding of the 5,000, and it's like, okay, wait a second, you're leaving, there's no more free sushi? Bye. Like the majority of them go home, and they don't come back. So the first thing that Luke does is give again. Remember, he's writing this to his dear friend Theophilus and us a glimpse into the primary response that Jesus received in that day and sadly does to this day. Indifference is the response to his message, to his message. Once their needs were met, once they'd gotten what they came for, they moved on. They moved on. So number two, I want to show you this. It's interesting how Luke has arranged this. We're going to show you, uh, we'll start off with just one of the kingly, uh, kingdom, pardon me, attitudes, but also the comparison directly that he gives with the deadly attitude that is a contrast to what he's showing us. The first is this. He shows us in verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
I, I can almost imagine from Luke's choice of words here. I mean, picture this. Jesus has just come down from the mountain. There's these crowds here. And I can almost imagine his heart feeling sad. Because, again, we've already seen in this gospel so far that he knows our thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. And I have a sense that he's sad because, look, it says that he lifted up his eyes. Was he praying? Was he praying that not only those who are close by him, but those who are in the back of them would finally hear the message? We don't know, but it's certainly possible. And so he lifted up his eyes, suggesting that he had been looking down, and we now enter the most famous and memorable sermon ever preached by Jesus. Luke's brief record of the Sermon on the Mount is recorded here. I have another question. You know me. I'm full of them. Can you ever imagine, have you ever imagined being in the presence of Jesus preaching this sermon, of hearing him actually preach? Listen, I've gone to conventions and gotten really excited because John Piper was standing beside me just before he walked up and preached, or hearing some other famous preacher. It is amazing. It, it is awesome. Can you imagine hearing Jesus preach these words? I mean, in those days, some of them had the hope of who he was, some of them were like, I, I think he must be. Others were clearly amazed by his words and loved him for his teaching. But he hadn't died and resurrected as of yet. We now know that. Can you imagine? Well, here's a glimpse of what you might have seen. First of all, unlike myself, with my iPad here, he had no notes. He preached completely extemporaneously. So he never took his eyes off of the people that he was speaking to. Every word that came out of his mouth was a word that was already perfect. And it just came, and he just opened his mouth, and he spoke. In fact, Luke, Matthew, when you read his uh, opening to the Sermon on the Mount, those are the exact words he opens with. He says, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now, most experts would say that this sermon probably went on, and you're going to be glad that today's won't, for probably an hour and a half to two hours. I'm sure it was typically the kind of thing that where it was like, don't stop. Please keep preaching. Please keep telling us how these things are going to be. But of course, if we read Luke's account, it would take you probably three to five minutes at the most to read the verses right? And, and I've actually read Matthew's out loud to myself and timed it, and it, it, it doesn't take 12 minutes to read all of Matthew's accounts. So what we have here, and we know this to be true, is that we just have a summary by both Luke and Matthew of the whole sermon that was given on that day. Luke, of course, never heard the sermon. He wasn't there per personally to hear it. He would have gone to others to, to get the details of what was here. And in fact, it's likely that he got some of this from Matthew because Matthew's gospel was written before the others and before the time that Luke starts writing his gospel. So clearly it was a powerful sermon and literally thousands of hours of sermons come on from that day. Maybe tens of thousands of hours of sermons have been preached on this sermon. I don't know how many times I've come back to it. We've come back to it in, in the teachings of the church. It's been remarkable. But that none of them clearly, honestly, listen, none of them have clearly, honestly ever been as powerful as this sermon. We've got to hear it from Christ today. You need to hear these words. I need to hear them from Christ today. In Matthew's gospel, he ends the Sermon on the Mount, the last, <laughs> the last verse 
That's, that's classic. Okay, we have a camera here recording our messages, just so you know. Um, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words. In chapter 7, he says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. No kidding. But the question still remains. Did they just hear? His brother, right, James said, folks, don't just be hearers of the Word. Be doers. Be doers of the Word. So Luke now presents us with the first kingdom attitude. And of course, these character traits of those who inhabit the kingdom of God have been popularly, um, have been popularized by the tag, the Beatitudes, right? And it's, it's a great title. It's the Beatitudes. And we love it. And it makes a lot of sense. But we must not forget this very important distinction. They are the Beatitudes and not the do attitudes, right? It's It's not a list of what you and I need to be first as a result of doing in order to enter the kingdom of God. These are blessings that Jesus gives to us, not based on our own merit, but based solely on His love, on His mercy, and His grace. And so let's look at that first one. Look at the first one. Note that these words are directed towards His disciples and not the crowd, who are still there but denied but behind the disciples and are covering the hillside. That's important again to see. He's, you, you see this when we get to Luke chapter 12. He's talking to the crowd, and then he, he literally, Luke actually says, and then he turns to his disciples, and, and he very caring tone and terminology, don't be taken back and, by covetousness and, and false teaching. You, my beloved. His language towards his own disciples is, is really what we need to see here. Blessed is, of course, in the past tense. In other words, you who are already blessed, who are already acknowledging your poverty, yours is the kingdom of God. That's literally what we should take from this, what Jesus is saying. So now can you imagine, imagine why this is such a popular and powerful and wonderful message in that day? I mean, the reality is today we, we live in a, in a world, North America, especially Europe to um, Asia even to this day for the, for the most part, uh, where it's mostly middle class. Mostly. In that day, the, the, the divide was poor, and there was a lot of them. It was the vast majority and the very rich. The very rich. And so you can imagine how that, that message in that day was very well received. The poor were the ones being also oppressed by those who were rich. They were being held down And so the message of Jesus, this is good news. No wonder thousands upon thousands of people are coming out to hear him, mostly poor. But even the Pharisees and the scribes and the rich were coming to hear him as well. You remember the other great sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It was the first sermon that he preached, remember, in his home church. Awesome. Hometown boy, done good, comes home. And these were his words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, you'll also remember what happened there. They all loved his reading at first, all of them. And please see this in that synagogue on that day. There were the Pharisees, there were the scribes, there were the rich, and there were a lot of poor. It's Nazareth. They were all there, 
And at first, they loved the words that came out of his mouth. They loved him. Well, this is our, our hometown boy. And you remember when he was a kid? Like, listen to him now. It's awesome. What happened? Things changed because he expounded this, this sermon, this passage, these verses. And, and he said to them, he goes, yes, let me explain it to you. I am the one, the Spirit is anointed, and I have come for all of you in this room here today. I've come for all of you. You are all the spiritually poor. That's how they would have understood it in that day. You are all the spiritually poor. You are all captives. You're all blind. You're all oppressed. I've come for you. And that's why, quite frankly, Matthew being Jewish versus Luke being a a pagan Gentile ex-skeptic who's come to faith in Jesus, he records this beatitude and he remembers it this way. Or he adds, for clarification, because he's Jewish, blessed are the poor in spirit. So remember, all of those who were there on that hillside that day probably were Jewish. Most of them who were there were Jewish. And they understood that he was not speaking just about economically poor people. They knew their Old Testament. They knew the images and the metaphors and the pictures and types that were shown about being spiritually poor and humbling oneself before you come before God. They would, of course, especially have known the Psalms where we read instances like this, where it says this, as for me, I want to make sure I'm here, As for me, there you are. As for me, I am poor, look at this, and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Who wrote this psalm? King David, rather wealthy man. So none none of the people in that day, when they heard these words, yes, they were thinking, yeah, you came for us. We're captive. We're in poverty. Yay, help us. We need it. Is this a get-rich-quick scheme? You know, is this prosperity gospel? No, actually it's not at all. But Jesus came for those who are poor in spirit. That said, when Jesus came, he gave the poor good news and established his kingdom himself by becoming poor, didn't he? We know that from the Gospels. He lived his life as a singularly poor man. He had nothing. Foxes have holes and what? He literally had nothing. The Apostle Paul records this about him. It says, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Where? In your wallet? No. In your heart. And in the blessings that are in the heavenly places. Amen? That's why he became poor for us. So we should not be surprised by Jesus' teaching here at all. Jesus' disciples are generally poor. Most of the men and women who were following him were poor. Some of the women, actually, who were following him were of means, and they would help support the ministry. They were giving to the ministry as much, if not more so, than any of the actual fishermen men because they no longer had any income. We also read in in Luke's account in the Gospel of Acts that once the church is established, that God had actually blessed some of the members of the churches with lots of money and with lots of property. Why do I say that? Because they were selling it and bringing it to the feet of the apostles so the apostles could distribute it to the church as needed. So this first beatitude then is the primary character trait, hear this, of someone who is now in the kingdom of God. 
it's, it's the first change of heart, be attitude that you should see and should notice in your own life. These people have been cut to the heart. They have seen their sin for what it is. Peter in the boat, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Jesus is at that point going, bingo, I can use you. I will make you, Peter, because you repented. You saw your heart for what it is. That's the point where we move to this. All of this, hear me, all this, of course, is a work of the Spirit, of Jesus, not our own. So again, see the scene. Jesus is looking at the twelve and those disciples sitting at his feet when he says these beautiful words. It's encouraging, isn't it? I'm sure they were encouraged when they heard these words. I'm sure the crowd was kind of like, what's this all mean? Well, then Jesus actually turns to the crowd. He does. Or at least Luke lines it up that way for us because here's what he says in verse 24. Coming out of the mouth of Jesus as he now looks to the crowd, he then says, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. I would suggest this needs to be a wake-up call for anyone who is financially rich today, but also those who think they've got themselves covered, thank you very much. Those who think that they are spiritually good enough, that they're rich, look at all the good I do. Look at, I give to this, I give to that, I do this, I do that. Oh, I don't go to church, I don't necessarily believe in Jesus, but I do all these things. Come on, my name's, my name's on plaques. I, I go out and I march for things. I, I don't eat meat. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. It's a form of righteousness. I like to go after it once in a while. We who are rich here today, and listen, come on, come on, listen. Relatively speaking, every one of us in this room, every one of us in North America are rich in comparison to the poverty that we're talking about that was experienced in that day and in that world. We're rich, relatively speaking. We're constantly, however, being assaulted to rely on our riches for our happiness and to want, need more. Thank you, advertising, marketing, right? We're constantly being bombarded with that. We, we can become so in love with our money, with our possessions, with our stuff, with our lifestyle, that we can be numbed to our desperate need every moment, every day for God and for the needs of others. I did some accounting this week. How often it dawned on me that other people had needs. The question we must ask is this. Do we have so much that we've lost touch with our need for God or the needs for others? Finally, and most deadly, we who are rich can become overly self-sufficient, which means overly proud. Boastful, in fact, of what we've done, taking credit for our comforts. Can we possibly at that point, if that's the way we're thinking, live a humble life, live a life of less? I'm not so sure. Here's the comparison now between king, kingdom attitudes and deadly attitudes right beside each other. 
Verses 21a and 25a say this, Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. See how Luke did this? Now, these, this, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, this is not recorded as one event. These didn't happen in this order. Luke's doing this on purpose, and I'll explain part of that for you in a second. Um, again, with, with Matthew, he records it this way. Blessed are you who hunger after, anyone know? Righteousness. Amen. That's the way Matthew records it. Luke is, however, writing, and this is what I wanted to explain, from a very different perspective. He's writing to the Gentile pagan, ex-skeptic, his good friend Theophilus, so that he may have certainty in his faith. The Greeks were philosophers. They reasoned and rationalized everything as philosophers. And so his good friend, the Greek secular mind, relates well to the contrast between hungry, satisfied, full, still hungry. They have water cooler conversations about this kind of stuff all the time. So that's what he's appealing to when he writes it this way and records these things this way. The Jew hears King David, however, when they hear this. They hear someone like King David, again, where he says, and you know this verse, it's very, these verses, very famous, as a deer pants, right, for flowing stream, streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My thirst is for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? And so David's longing in the midst of his sinful life <laughs> as a very wealthy man is the presence of God. He hungers for that all the time. And that's why Jesus told us all how we can be fully satisfied all the time. John records it, right, in his gospel. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Where are you going when you're hungry? when you're thirsty. So speaking of commercials, do you remember the famous Lay's potato chips commercial? Remember that one? I, 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 you know me, my background. I can't help it. I, I remember these things, right? It was the one, I bet you can't just eat one. Remember that commercial? Right? It, was, it was great. It, it, it's how it works with deadly attitudes. It's the deadly attitude rule. It, it's that terrible cycle of hun hunger, satisfaction, hunger, satisfaction. I'll tell you what, the same thing works with sin. The things that we love that are not good for us. Jesus is warning those who are full of themselves and their deadly attitudes to not become so well-fed that you never, ever hunger for the things that are above. So we need a change of mind. We need an attitude shift. Where does that happen? Where does that come from? He goes on and says this in the second half of 21 and 25. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See the contrast? It's, it's amazing. I mean, Jesus is the one preaching these words, but the way Luke has arranged it, it's wonderful. Do you guys ever watch the comedy club? Don't. <laughs> I used to love comedy, really. I used to at one point in time think that, you know, I should become a stand-up and... It's a good thing that I didn't do that because I obviously wouldn't be very good at it. 
Don't, because it's not very funny, really. It's, and quite frankly, and I've tried, I look at, you know, sometimes just before the National comes on, there's Halifax Comedy Festival or whatever, and I just watch the last few minutes of it, and, and it's like comedy has gone down so low, isn't it? It's like vulgar, it's like the most debased things in our world and society today, but that's where people in our world go, isn't it? When things get really, really ugly. When there are disasters and difficulty, people, they go to comedy. They go to laugh it off. I mean, I mean, the idea is apparently it's good for the soul. Now, you do know that that is not in the Bible. <laughs> apparently it's good for the soul. It's not in the Bible. So the reality is we should weep over tragedies. Our hearts should be broken for the things that are going on in this world. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and for what was going on in Jerusalem, and he wept. We should weep over sin. Why? Because Jesus does. It's killing everyone. Now, it's not to say that we should be downcast, unhappy people all the time, right? Solomon did say, a cheerful heart is good medicine. The point obviously needs to be there are things that we can be joyful about, be happy about, and maybe even have a good laugh about. And there are things that we certainly shouldn't be. But that's the deadly attitude. That's where people go. So finally, Jesus does give his 12, look at this, he does give his 12 closest disciples sitting right in front of him a bit of a peek into the job description. It's a bit of a peek. He says this in verses 22 to 23, and then also the corollary in 26. Look at this. Blessed are you when people hate you. So guys, welcome to the mission. Welcome to the team. Here's what's going to happen. People are going to hate you but you're going to be blessed by me. It's a blessing from me that people hate you. Can you imagine that? And, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Not now. In heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. He concludes with verse 26, Woe to you, woe to you, hmm. when all people speak well of you. Don't you want that? I want that. I don't want people ever to walk out and go, I hated that guy's sermon. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the mailman. We all want that, don't we? Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Friends, let me be practical with you as your pastor, as the speaker here this morning. This is the great tension in the church in North America today. See, we have this idea that we want everybody to love Jesus. Yes! I want them to love Jesus. You want them to love Jesus. Jesus cared about them. What? Hearing the message. You're a sinner. You need to repent. Then I can do amazing things for you. I can bless you. But you need to allow me to do that work in you first. It's the great problem and, and trouble for the church today. It's the last thing that we want is persecution, right? Who wants that? Who wants to be excluded from the culture? Who doesn't want to be invited into a certain place? Who doesn't want people to come to our cafe because they know we're a church? comes home, right? It's the reality. 
But that's okay. Jesus still loves them. We do too. So friends, I hope that you can take at least this one thing away with you today. To be the kind of person that you want to be, I hope, and that I want to be here today, the kind of person that you want to be, to see change in your life that is truly for the better, that is truly life-changing, and that is permanent, you and I need a change of attitude. That's what repentance is a little bit about, isn't it? It's, it's a change of mind. It's a turning of your mind. We need beatitudes that are the gifts and blessings that only Jesus Christ can provide. And look what he did with his own disciples and through his disciples. Look what he did with those 12 and, and the 120 that remained on, on the day that he rose from the dead that were still hanging around. Not thousands, just 120. Look what he did with them. It's remarkable what he did with them. But remember this, remember this for encouragement. He said to Peter, I will make you. Christian, he will make you. He will make you. Your motivations, my motivations, where do they come from? Right here. They come from our heart. We are motivated by what we love, and that's where it must begin and end with Christ. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't want your mind. He doesn't even want your attitudes. He, he needs to give those to you. He wants your heart, your repentant heart. And once he has that, he will bless you with all the beatitudes in this life and life eternal. And so some of you are going, okay, how do I get that? <laughs> That's a good question. I hope you're asking that. How do I get that today? How do I get that? How do I really experience that kind of life? Even though there's going to be some challenges and struggles following Christ, how do I get that? Well, I've only got one thing for you. And it's right here in the message of Jesus today in this record that Luke gives to us today. There's only one thing that I can give to you, you will learn, and that is this. You need to be at the feet of Christ. The men and women who went on from that day, and especially after Jesus died and rose again, and went on to make a difference and, quite frankly, die to themselves and for him and for the church from that point on, they sat as close to him every day as they possibly could. Listen, you want to experience that? That's how you will experience his love and acceptance. And only then will you love him more than anything else in your life. And that, my friends, changes everything. Pray with me, would you?